There's been a lot to take in lately on the economic news front. Interest rates, inflation, recession, soft landing, soft-ish landing. Everywhere you turn, people have their crystal ball out, all trying to answer, what next? We're in a very unusual period. That's Andy Nasser, Chief Investment Officer at Scotia Wealth Management. Unusual indeed. And clarity seems hard to come by. If households or businesses aren't sure where interest rates and inflation are going to settle, they're going to hold back spending. And you're seeing that today. And until we have a little bit more visibility, until we're a little bit more confident about what normal looks like and when we get there, then the waters are going to be a little bit muddied. So what do you do? That's the big question we hope to answer this episode. Andy's here to shed some light on how investors might best navigate these unusual times, as well as give some insight on what's creating them in the first place. And in the meantime, he'll use his Zen-like skills to help keep us all grounded. Everything's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. (laughs) I'm Stephen Maurice, and this is Perspectives. Andy, welcome back to the show. It's always good to see you. And I've seen you too. All right. People are tuning in to hear your expertise on investing. So looking forward over the course of the next couple of months, what's the big picture? What's the headline that you're telling people? Jeez, you know, you're kind of putting me on the spot with this. I mm-hmm. heard a U2 song in on my way to work this morning. So maybe it's Achtung Baby. Maybe that's it. But my German's <laughs> not very good. Not It's a Beautiful Day? Well, it's going to be a beautiful day. We'll get there. But, you know, you look at everything that's happening with the global economy, and it just seems like this restrictive monetary policy is having an impact, not just in Canada and the United States, but really all over. And that's one of the things that is a little bit concerning. You know, you're seeing a lot of these central bankers, policymakers say, well, you know, we're probably closer to the end of increasing interest rates. It's because there's some cracks in the economy. Households are spending less. Corporations aren't spending as much. And all of that just makes you think, "Mm, well, if policymakers are going to be data dependent, and Mr. Polo's admitted this, right? He said there's a range of outcomes that could influence the future of monetary policy. Then investors should probably have the same kind of mindset. Maybe not a good time to take on a whole bunch of risk, especially when we've seen some really narrow leadership in things like stocks. Right. So you're talking about Stephen Polos, the former Bank of Canada governor. Exactly. Right. So it's interesting that you're saying it's concerning that policymakers are saying maybe the end is in sight for the rate hiking cycle. Why would that be a concerning thing? Why would we not be then optimistic? You know, everybody talks about a soft landing. The optimistic scenario is a soft landing Mm -hmm. where the economy slows down, we avoid recession, they're able to reduce interest rates. Remember, central banks set policy, financial institutions are the transmission mechanism for that policy. And right now, the policy is restrictive. So high interest rates are affecting how credit flows through the economy. So when they're sitting here and taking all of this incoming data in, Mm -hmm. and they're seeing that things are slowing, the hope is that they can react early enough so that we have a soft landing and we avoid that economic contraction, even though there's signs of a little bit of an economic contraction in Canada. Right. But that's a big old plane to land gently is from a global perspective. Right. But isn't the slowdown, I mean, that's the point of all of this, isn't it? I mean, that's what they're trying to do in order to tackle inflation is to slow things down. Absolutely. If you look back in the last few years, and this is kind of relevant, we went through the pandemic, this health crisis. We responded to it with an unprecedented amount of fiscal and monetary policy mm-hmm. stimulus. I say unprecedented. In hindsight, 
it's easy to say that we overdid it. At the time, you know, all of that money was necessary to keep the economy going. But for perspective, we spent $30 trillion to get mm -hmm. through the health crisis. It's more than 35 times the amount of money we spent in the global financial crisis. We had a whole bunch of demand. That money went to households. A lot of it went to households directly. And we had a whole bunch of demand throughout 2020, 2021, 2022. So that helped the economy stay afloat. It helped us get around some of those supply-related constraints, especially due to geopolitical events that unfolded. And now we're starting to see policymakers kind of change their tune. Interest rates went from zero. And remember, we had all kinds of concerns about are they going to be negative and how long would mm -hmm. they remain negative. Policy rates have gone back up. Interest rates have shot back up. And it's almost like we forget that part of the reason we're here is because of how we responded to the health crisis. Mm -hmm. Meaning, you know, we created all of this excess liquidity, the money was spent, and now we're in a situation where everybody's looking at inflation, everybody's looking at interest rates, and they're trying to figure out what normalized is. And in our mind, normalized is still kind of something similar to the central bank targets that existed before this whole concern about interest rates and inflation. So we think we probably get down to something around 3%, and that would be just fine. But we can't sustain interest rates of 4 or 5% because the global economy is way too excessively indebted. And I think that's the important thing for people to remember. I get where central banks are coming from, right? If I was the head of a central bank, I would not want a message that we're going to cut interest rates because that induces risk-taking. It induces behavior. People will start to try to game the system. And there's no better way of thinking about that than the housing market in Canada. Right. You're already starting to see some house price appreciation is moderated, but it's declining in some places. People are worried about, you know, should I refinance my mortgage? What term should I refinance it at? And if there's a clear view that interest rates are going to decline, well, that might change the way that they think of making investments. So with the last announcement, which they held steady at 5%, the Bank of Canada, but still, you know, very cautious in their approach, not making any promises at all, as you said, and probably for the reasons that you said about any cuts in the near future. The message is we're going to be taking it one decision at a time. Interest rates may be sufficiently restrictive to restore price stability, uh, but you know, given the persistence of underlying inflation, uh, there's a number of things we need to see before uh, we can be more confident in that conclusion. And uh, that voice we just heard was Tiff Macklem, the governor of the Bank of Canada. That was from a news conference the day after the bank's latest hold decision. You think that was the right approach for them to take? You could argue that they may have overdone it. Right. And only time will tell if this policy response has been warranted. It's certainly been effective in pushing inflation down. But the challenge is, are they going to be able to react swiftly enough to avoid significant fissures in the economy, issues mm -hmm. that could linger, like scarring in labor markets or a sharp increase in unemployment or a change in corporate spending and in sentiment, things that may take a little bit of time before they get back to where they should be in a relatively stable economic environment. In our view, you know, we probably have a mild recession. Hopefully it's a soft landing. We don't think we're going to end up in a terrible recessionary scenario, but still as we kind of go through the process of, and by the way, the markets reflect this, right? Mm -hmm. I'm telling you that most investors, if you were to look at stock prices or asset prices, you couldn't tell that interest rates have shot up in the last couple of years. You couldn't tell that economies are slowing down and household expenditures are moderating. If you didn't see any of the economic data and you just saw asset prices, you'd think everything looks okay. Right. Well, under the surface, everything's kind of not okay. 
So it's that balance of what's kind of priced in, where does everybody think everything is going to go, and where are the surprises going to be. So when we look at monetary policy, when we look at asset prices, we think the balance of risk is probably skewed a little bit to the downside, not suggesting that asset prices are going to decline sharply. They could, just to caveat this, right? If you think in equities and stocks, the average intra-year correction for equities is between 10 to 15%. We haven't had one of those in a while. Mm-hmm. So we're overdue for a bit of a pullback, especially if risk sentiment sours. But from an economic point of view, there are clear and visible signs that things are slowing down, not just in Canada and the US, but also in China, which is a big part of the whole global economy. Yeah, I was going to get to some of those specifics, both from an economics perspective and an investing perspective. But in the US, I mean, they're kind of on fire right now. And they've had actually pretty decent growth, certainly better than in Canada in the last quarter, weren't they? two and a half percent or something like that. That's the challenge, right? Headline economic growth has been okay. Inflation looks like it's more or less getting to central bank targets. The key mistake that I think most policymakers want to avoid is this wage inflation dynamic Mm -hmm. where you're seeing a lot of unions, a lot of employees, labor demanding much higher wages to cope with higher prices. And so if that starts to take a bigger grip on the global economy, never mind the US economy, then we end up with a situation where inflation does linger at levels that are higher than central bankers would like. Now, from a long-term perspective, this is a little bit different, right? You got to think of how technology is going to affect things, and you got to think of the dynamic between interest rates and inflation over long periods of time. You know, we sit here and we look at labor markets and we say, labor markets are really tight. Unemployment is still very low across Mm -hmm. many countries and regions. The reason for that is partly because of where we've come from through the health crisis, but also because of aging populations. As the population gets older, you start to see labor participation rates decline, and any company always has the ability to substitute labor for capital. It doesn't take a quarter or two. It takes a longer period of time to do that Mm -hmm. because if labor gets too expensive, they're going to deepen their investments in things like technology, in things like artificial intelligence. And they're going to be able to increase the productivity of the existing people that they've got doing the work, whether it's providing goods or services. Remember, economic output is a function of labor force growth, people, and the goods and services those people produce, the productivity of that labor force. So to the extent that they can implement technology or AI to keep a lid on unit labor costs, these wage growth issues that we're dealing with right now, they're a bit of a temporary phenomenon and they're already starting to roll over. So if you think of it that way, you know, we're worried a little bit less about this wage inflation dynamic from medium to long-term perspective. And let's not also forget over real long periods of time, we know central banks are targeting inflation of around a few percent. Over long periods of time, nobody's going to lend money out at 5% if they think inflation is going to be 10. Mm -hmm. So inflation and interest rates will move in the same direction. But right now we're debating how quickly do they start to fall? Okay, so some conflicting signals in there, some different things to take into consideration. Decent growth in the US, less so in Canada, but strong labor market, but pressure on wages on the other side. In the short to medium term, what's the message then? What does an investor take away from all of that? Is it just caution is the word? I'm so glad you asked. I didn't want to leave it on conflicting signals. So what do you do? So we got together earlier this year and the message was probably some rockier times ahead. We were absolutely wrong, but the conclusion was right. The conclusion was stay invested, 
be diversified and don't try to time the market. And I say this with the utmost sincerity. It is very, very difficult to time markets. As much as we talked about higher interest rates and inflation, if you think of that from a corporate perspective, companies are very good hedges against inflation. They typically push higher prices through to their end markets. You're seeing this remarkable resilience in corporate profits. But if you're thinking of how to build a portfolio, obviously equities can be a key part of that portfolio. It's one of the largest asset classes as well as fixed income. We think there are great opportunities in fixed income, especially if interest rates start to fall because you get a capital appreciation kicker. With equities, what do you want to own? You want to own, so if we think of what the risks are, the risks are, well, maybe interest rates stay higher for longer maybe prices remain stubbornly high. What do you want to own? Well, you want to buy a company that's a price setter, not a price taker, right? Some monopoly, oligopoly, some kind of sustainable competitive advantage. Lots of those in Canada, lots of those in the United States. So that's what you put in the portfolio. What else? Well, maybe I want to buy companies that have less debt relative to their peers. Well, that makes sense, right? That way they don't have to worry about the debt refinancing risk. So there are things that you can do Apart from diversification across asset classes and geographies, you can have a high quality bias in the portfolio and you worry less about what happens in a quarter or two. Take a bit of a medium to long-term view. Make sure that your risk tolerance is aligned with your financial plan. This is the most important thing. Mm -hmm. I can't stress the importance of planning enough and just brace for a little bit of volatility, which we haven't had in a while. The worst thing that people can do is panic when it starts to look like we're going to see cracks in the economy or unexpected things pop up, like maybe some U.S. banks experience some issues. Maybe things in China get a little bit worse. Those are kind of the sensationalist headlines that affect sentiment more than fundamentals. Because if there's one thing that we've noticed, not just in the last few years, but in the decades that preceded where we are today... It's that policymakers, whether they are central banks or governments, will take a very active approach to remediate any of the issues that are occurring in the economy because their sole objective is economic stability. So obviously, as you said, individuals' risk tolerance varies from person to person. But overall, what I take you to be saying is maybe scale back on the risk taking at this point. Well, depends on your time horizon really too, right? I mean, for anybody that's got liquidity needs, it'd be bad advice to tell them to, you know, plunk a bunch of money into something that could decline by 10 or 20%. But the risk appetite needs to kind of be aligned with the investment objective. So in our view, you know, equities are always riskier than fixed income. Mm -hmm. Equities, like the bouncing ball is corporate profits, right? If companies make more money, equity investors make more money. That relationship is clear as day in almost every single country over long periods of time. So all you have to ask yourself is, are the companies that I'm buying, are they going to all of a sudden no longer be going concerns? Mm -hmm. Are they going to lose money for years? If it's a couple of quarters, you're good. And you're just going to see the multiple, the valuation that people are willing to pay to get exposure to that particular company's corporate profits or that region's corporate profits. You're going to see that vary. That's how the sentiment gets reflected. You also see the earnings vary a little bit, but those are very short term. And then, you know, from a fixed income perspective, you can maybe get, if you think of equity growth or expected returns on a normalized basis, it should be nominal GDP plus, 
right? If it's a good business and it has those characteristics that we talked about, a sustainable competitive advantage, a relatively healthy balance sheet, they should at least be able to grow at five or 6% a year. And then you tack on, you know, maybe some advantages that the company has. So you should be able to get five, six plus percent return in equities. Hopefully it's a little bit higher than that, barring any pullback. And then in fixed income right now, you're getting a riskless four. Mm. So where's your trade-off, right? The riskless four is pretty good. I don't know that I tie up all my money in a five-year GIC for a riskless four or five, right? For five years or something like that. But I would definitely have fixed income as a key ballast as part of the portfolio so that if those risky assets go on sale, you can redeploy tactically and make more money over a longer time horizon. Okay. So in some respects, it looks super attractive. You got GICs, even long-term savings accounts or high interest savings accounts paying, I mean, you said four, but you can get five oh, in yeah, some you can places. Get higher than that. That looks like a pretty good deal to you would think to a lot of people. I'm getting a guaranteed five with no risk. Absolutely. And look, this is why fixed income is part of portfolio construction. When we talk about diversification across asset classes, it's making sure you've got exposure to things that move in different directions. Now, that didn't happen in 2022 because mm -hmm. in 2022, rates kept getting ratcheted higher and higher. And for the first part of this year, it looked like we had a bit of a reprieve in terms of fixed income performance. But if we talk about the worst case scenario here, the worst case scenario being that you know, maybe we have a sharp contraction in the economy, that can't occur without interest rates eventually declining. I mean, they're going to have to reflect the economic reality of we're not producing as much as we could produce and inflation is no longer a concern. And so in that scenario, not only are you going to get, as opposed to, let's say, tying up your money in a five-year GIC where you can't redeem it, if you're investing in a bit of a longer dated fixed income instrument, you can get the benefit of capital appreciation, you get the benefit of liquidity, and that's where you can do things a little bit more tactically. So fixed income is a great spot to be. I don't think there are many people that think inflation is going to be around 5% for the next five years. So if you think of it that way, your purchasing power is going to remain intact. Yep. But you can complement that with some really good equities and companies in the portfolio, and you can buy more of them as risk appetite changes. Okay. As we said, US economy doing well, China's showing some sign of problems? Should people be looking more to the US market or what does Europe look like? What's the geographical distribution starting to look like? This is a really good question. We know we have a home country bias in Canada, right? Most Canadian investors own too much Canada. If you look at the proportion of Canadian equity exposure in portfolios, it's much higher than Canada's contribution to the global economy. And there are a lot of really good publicly listed companies in the United States and other parts of the world that will complement the publicly listed companies in the TSX. The challenge with Canadian companies is that the index like the TSX is really heavily skewed toward materials and energy and financials. And those are what we would characterize as old economy sectors. It's not a bad thing. It just means that they're a little bit more sensitive to what happens on a day-to-day -day basis in the economy. So if the economy contracts, you know, your margins are a little bit thinner, your balance sheet's a little bit more susceptible to that debt refinancing risk, especially for lenders. Commodity prices will bounce up and down a lot more throughout an economic cycle. You complement some of these real high quality businesses, like we got great banks in Canada. You complement that with exposure to things like healthcare and technology, which are a huge part of the index in the US. Mm -hmm. And then you can get that proper diversification. I know when people look at different regions, there's a bias to just look at the PE multiple. Like somebody will look at the TSX and say, oh, Canadian companies are much cheaper than US companies or EM or European companies are much cheaper than US companies. That is very misleading. 
It's misleading because when you look under the hood and you account for those compositional differences in the indices on a dollar for dollar basis, the US isn't all that much more expensive than Canada. Yes, international markets are cheaper, but a lot of those international markets have much more significant exposure to EM, emerging market economies or mm -hmm. developing economies like China, which means that there are still some other issues that could affect corporate profits beyond the control of the companies for the most part. So in our view, the best way to get diversified exposure to corporate profit growth is by making sure you've got high quality bias in Canada, being much more overweight in the US, and then opportunistically finding those international companies, although we have a preference for companies that are in developed markets like Europe, where they get a disproportionate amount of their revenues from emerging market economies. And that number is closer to 40% in Europe. But even if you look at the S&P 500, 40% of revenues for those companies are derived from outside of the United States. Remember, the global economy is very well integrated. Financial linkages are deep, trade linkages are deep. It's diversification matters, but if we have a big economy that's reeling, it's gonna affect other parts of the world. So that's why the diversification is kind of important, but it's diversification by geography, diversification by industry, and making sure that the companies that you own have those high quality characteristics and they got wind at their back, some secular themes that might help them. Okay. I think we'll finish with real estate because everybody loves to talk about real estate. What's your thought on that part of the economy in Canada? Real estate is challenged in Canada. And I say this mostly because of how real estate, if we're talking about residential real estate, mostly because of how it's structured. And this is a little bit different than the US. So look, the cost of a mortgage has gone up pretty much everywhere. In Canada, we have debt terms that don't match the amortization period, right? We've got 25 plus year amortizations now, those numbers are going up and we have three to five year debt terms. So Canadian households are much more sensitive to fluctuations in interest rates than the US, where the debt term matches the amortization period and it's around 30 years. Yeah. So if you think of it that way, there's no question that as time goes on, and this is the key risk, right? The key risk isn't that interest rates live wherever they are now for a quarter or two. The risk is that they're perilously high where they are and that we haven't seen the impact of that refinancing risk for households, for businesses show up in the economy. You haven't seen the multiplier effect because if people are struggling with higher debt service costs, if they're struggling with you know food prices and just aggregate inflation, everything costs more, then where's the money going to come from? Yeah. It's certainly not pre-tax wage growth, right? That's the other thing. Wage growth is all pre-tax. So the way that that affects the economy, that's why it's always so difficult. That's why these central bankers and everybody's always so, you know, they're a little bit ambiguous about the impact of it all. Because the reality is we've never had this much debt floating around in the global economy, let alone our domestic economy. And we really don't know how quickly the changes in interest rates will show up. We do know historically, it's taken about 18 to 24 months for changes in the policy rate to really impact the economy. And if you go back 18 to 24 months ago, I mean, we really just started increasing interest rates then. So I don't know if we've seen the full impact of getting to 5%. I think we're probably some of the way there, right. but the impact on the economy could become a lot more evident over the course of the next couple of quarters. So housing markets will reflect that. I think there's probably gonna be a bit of a pause here. We do not think there's a housing bubble that's gonna burst. We think the government's gonna, to the best of their ability, the government and policymakers will manage this because if housing bursts, that's a big problem for Canadians. Mm -hmm. Household debt, 75% of its mortgage debt. Yeah. And if all of a sudden you have an issue with people not being able to service those debt obligations, then you know you have a much, much bigger problem. Right. So you're talking to an investor. What are the two sentences you say to that person? 
everything's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. <laughs> it's going to be a beautiful day. But hang on a second. You were Actung baby guy a few minutes ago, and now it's a beautiful day? You asked me what the headline would be today. It's a beautiful day. It's about tomorrow. <laughs> so all of these concerns that you have, interest rates, inflation, portfolios, we're going to go through fits and starts, right? We're in a very unusual period. What I can tell you is everything that's unfolded with the global economy for the last 30 or 40 years, when central banks really started focusing on inflation, that doesn't turn on a dime in a few years. We're not in a new mid-single digit inflation era. We're not going to be able to support five or 6% interest rates on a go forward basis. Something's going to give, right? And when it does give, we'll go back to normal. We'll kick off a new business cycle, a much more hopefully stable business cycle that lasts a while. And then everything in the portfolios is going to be fine, right? Housing will eventually rebound. Right now, it's just, it's really tough because there's a lack of visibility and everybody's being a little bit more data dependent. And look, if the policymakers are data dependent, investors should be data dependent too, right? There's no point trying to be heroic right. and take on a bunch of risk or trying to catch a bottom or, you know, outright avoiding risk either, right? The best thing, be diversified, stay invested. Because as much as we were wrong, and again, I remember the last time we chatted, I think we were saying, well, there's probably a recession on the horizon. Debatable whether or not we're officially in one now, mm -hmm. but the point was stay invested because it's hard to time these things in markets bottom during recession. So I don't know if we've seen the bottom yet, but as things kind of unfold, we might get a pullback, but being invested was the right thing to do. Andy, thanks again for joining us. Always a pleasure to have you on the show. It's a pleasure being here. I've been speaking with Andy Nasser, Chief Investment Officer at Scotia Wealth Management. Perspectives podcast is made by me, Stephen Maurice, as well as Armina Lagaya and our producer, Andrew Norton. For a transcript of this episode, visit our website, scotiabank.com slash perspectives. We'll see you next time. <laughs>